The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I would invite you, if you would, to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy. I'm going to read to you just the first two verses of 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This morning, uh, we are going to uh, begin something new. I think from week to week, you never know what's coming now, right? This year's been just a little weird. It just seems like uh, nothing that we have quite planned has, you know, rolled along smoothly as necessary. But if you were here last week, uh, I, I apologize again for sort of dropping uh, surprising news on you uh, about my, uh, my coming uh, deployment in the fall. Uh, but I appreciate your kind words and your encouragement. So many of you have reached out to me over the last week via email or text or uh, in person in some way, shape, or form just to, uh, to be an encouragement and a help. And I uh, truly, truly appreciate that. Uh, but in light of that news, uh, it became very apparent to me that there's no way between now and my departure in mid-October that we could complete Hebrews. So... Um, I uh, decided to make a pivot here because uh, I didn't want to go back into Hebrews and then sort of leave it hanging uh, for that season while I'm away. So we will return to Hebrews, uh, Lord willing, when I return. But, uh, but for now, I, wanted, I want us to pivot to 1 Timothy because 1 Timothy, on two levels, this is important. Number one, we can complete it by October, Lord willing, right? Um, Lord willing, we can complete it by October. Um, but secondarily, I think that the content of 1 Timothy is incredibly germane to this season of our, of our church life. Uh, I think you're going to find that to be true as we sort of work our way through this, this brief letter. It is an incredibly practical letter that we'll study. It's very practical for the church. It is very practical, I believe, for us particularly uh, as we go through this season of preparation for me being sent out for a while. Uh, there are things in the, in the letter that are, that are just practical and, and simple to grasp and challenging for us all. Uh, it's gonna, we're going to learn about dangers to the local church. We're going to get sort of clear guidance on qualifications and how to select leaders in the body of Christ. Uh, we're going to get some, some clear instruction on how to handle sort of homegrown heresy that pops up in the body of Christ from time to time. Uh, we're going to get directions on, on, on how to stay focused on the main things that the church ought to be about and not get distracted on things that don't matter. Uh, we're going to learn to deal with conflict and sin and controversy in the body as well. All of these things are there and so much more in this letter. It's so much sort of just practical church life stuff for us. 
uh, it's going to help you and it's going to help me to sort of shore up the foundations of who we are and to sort of look out on the horizon of what kind of threats there are to the body of Christ in general throughout history and uh, I think make us more aware of of how to, uh, as Paul is going to charge Timothy, to, how to fight the good fight here and how to, how to guard the, the faith that's been entrusted to us from those who've gone before us. And so uh, we look to 1 Timothy, uh, I think, with, at least I do, with great anticipation for the practical implications of it in the body and uh, for your life and for mine. So our task this morning, uh, as usual when we start something new, is sort of for me to kind of tee this book up for you. To sort of set it up so that you know what we're going to be studying. So that you have a general idea of what this book is about, what its nature is, uh, where, it find, where it fits into the big picture of Scripture. Who wrote it? To whom did they write it? What are the key themes and the mix of it? And the general context. All this is so critical for us to grasp as we work our way through. Because as we get into this book, uh, a fairly short order, you're going to find some pretty controversial things going on in the book. And if we don't have some sort of context for the original uh, author and the original audience and the original context, uh, we're going to get tripped up on some of these sort of controversial things. And so it's worth our time, I believe, this morning to just uh, sort of get a a fly-by overview of this book so that I can familiarize you with it in general. And then uh, when we gather together for the next uh, time to start getting into the sort of particulars verse by verse through the book. Now, the book of 1 Timothy is, you know, if you're flipping in your Bible, it's toward the end of the Bible. It's toward the end of the the New Testament. It, It sort of resides within a subsection of the New Testament called the pastoral epistles are the pastoral letters. An epistle is nothing more than a letter. Uh, there are three that sort of fit in this category. First and second, Timothy and Titus are really the three that fit under the category of pastoral epistle. Epistles of a letter. Pastoral, they're called simply because they're, they're, they're sort of written by the Apostle Paul to two of his sort of uh, pastoral understudies. And they're written to deal with sort of practical matters in the life of the church. Pastoral matters. Things that that uh, relate to how the local church leadership uh, provides for the care of the souls of those who are in the body. It also deals with sort of orderly conduct in the local church. And so all of these are sort of pastoral kind of, kind of concerns. And so they uh, sort of group together loosely these three letters under the title Pastoral Epistles. First Timothy is the earliest of these written. Titus was written next. Second Timothy is the last of these to be written. Now, the author uh, identifies himself right at the very beginning uh, by saying, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So the, the letter, if we just take it on a, on, a, on a true reading right at the very beginning, it's quite clear who the author of the letter is. We don't have to guess. We don't have to wonder. It's not like Hebrews when we started that, when we have to spend all this time trying to figure out who in the world wrote the thing. Um, we're, we're clear about this, who wrote First Timothy. Paul wrote it. Now, that's been, was, was universally accepted to be true throughout the early history of the church. If you go back and read the early church fathers right on up until the 19th century, there was really no controversy about who wrote First Timothy. Uh, something weird happened in the world of theology around the 19th century, A bunch of theological eggheads went sideways and decided that we can't trust what the Bible says about itself, so we have to dig under the surface and and, and employ this thing called higher criticism, and by doing so, we can figure out the real deal. 
underneath the surface. And all of that was really, in that season of the history of theology, was really uh, an attempt by those who had rejected the full authority of the text of Scripture uh, to sort of undercut its authority in the life of the church and the body of Christ. And in another, on maybe secondarily, an attempt to sort of accommodate the culture around. And so in the 19th century, you find some, some theologians who start saying, well, you know, First Timothy probably wasn't written by Paul. The, the language is a little different. There are some words that, you know, don't show up in some of Paul's other letters. And some of Paul's key pieces of theology, they don't reside in the book of First and Second Timothy, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to bore you with all of those things this morning, other than to say you'll probably run into those kind of issues if you start studying 1 Timothy and you start reading very broadly about it. I'll suffice it to say uh, with you this morning, uh, I've I've looked into this pretty thoroughly, and I don't see any convincing evidence on any front that anyone other than the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Timothy. Um, And so I'm just going to leave it with that. But if you're interested, you can look further into that. And so the Apostle Paul wrote the letter. I mean, if there's anybody in the New Testament that's well-known, it's got to be the Apostle Paul next to the Lord Jesus. I mean, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a more, a more uh, a sort of gigantic figure in the New Testament than Paul. Um, now, I suspect that most of you are at least loosely familiar with who Paul is, but for those maybe who aren't familiar with who Paul is, we need to do just sort of a, a minute of review as to who is this person who's writing the letter. Um, when we meet Paul in the early part of, of the book of Acts, we, his name is not Paul, his name is Saul. And he is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a zealous Jew who is actively persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. He is uh, uh, traveling around. He is hunting down uh, Christians and Christian churches. And he is doing everything within his power and authority to persecute those individuals. One of the earliest things we see about him when we encounter him in the New Testament is we see him present uh, in the book of Acts at the stoning of one of the early church leaders, a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen's being murdered by stones being thrown at him uh, by many people. And it's in that context that we run into Saul. He's standing by and he's watching and he's approving of this murder. He's actually holding the, the, the coats of those who are perpetrating the the, the killing. And so when we meet this guy, he is far from the Lord. He is a very, very religious man. He's a very, very religious Jew. He is very well educated and well trained, perhaps as well trained and educated as anybody in his generation. And he is zealous about what he believes. He is acting on his faith, if you will, in very, very real ways. Ways that bring pain and trauma into the life of the early Christian church. But praise God, he doesn't stay that person. Praise God for the transforming power of the Lord Jesus Christ, who can take someone who is a a hostile persecutor of the church and completely transform his heart from the inside out. And that's exactly what happens to Saul. We find that one day he's on, on a road to Damascus, and the book of Acts tells us he's headed there to persecute more believers. And the Lord Jesus appears to him, slams him on his back on the on the road, blinds him, and speaks to him audibly. And uh, says to him, hey Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that's a good way to wake someone up, if you will, right? 
You need to get somebody's attention. You slam them on the ground, blind them, and speak to them with a voice from heaven. I would get my attention. Would it get yours? It got Paul's, Saul's at the time. And through this encounter with the Lord Jesus on this road, he's transformed. He becomes a new man. His faith is placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he becomes the, the persecutor who is now a part of the body of Christ. The zeal that, that he had previously, sort of with which he had previously pursued believers and pursued his previous faith in Judaism, he now turns and employs toward a new end. And that's the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. From that moment that he is transformed by Christ on that road, everything about him changes. Everything about him changes. He becomes a man who is sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe sold out more than anyone that's ever walked the planet. And his life becomes a day-by-day living testimony by which he, 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 he makes the most of every possible second before he dies to attempt to take the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to anyone anywhere around the world who will listen to him. Paul becomes, his name is changed from Saul to Paul. And he becomes really one of the greatest witnesses for Christ that the world has ever seen. Countless, countless numbers of people came to Christ through his evangelistic work, moving from place to place, going to where people are, and telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ and calling them to believe on him. And countless numbers of people were discipled by him personally. Paul wasn't just a one-trick pony. He was a guy who went around doing evangelism and sharing the gospel, but he was also a person who was very committed to discipleship, to coming alongside other men and and investing in them what he knew and and teaching them what it means to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, it was never an either-or. It was always a both-and. Take the gospel, share it with people who are lost, and disciple believers in their faith so that they can mature and grow and endure. And so Paul begins to employ his gifts and his skills and his talents in missionary work, going all throughout the Roman Empire, uh, primarily into Gentile places, and sharing the gospel and winning people to Christ and establishing church. He was a, he was a pioneer church planter, Paul was. He was a pioneer church planner. Everywhere he went, he would go into a city, he'd find somebody who would listen, and he would start telling them about Jesus. He would win some people to Christ, and he would establish a church, and he would stay there often for a while, and sometimes not for very long, depending on how long it took him to get the church established and to raise up leaders who could lead it. As soon as he could do those two things, he was in the wind to the next place, to the next town, to the next city where lost people were. He literally planted churches all over the Roman Empire. And he's the author of this book to Timothy. He, these pastoral epistles really are some of the last things that Paul ever wrote. They're, they're, they're written late in his life and late in his ministry. First uh, Timothy that we'll be looking at here is it was written uh, most likely right after his first Roman imprisonment. Paul was in jail a few times, and after his first Roman imprisonment, he gets out of jail somewhere in the vicinity of A.D. 62, and there he begins to to travel again and go right back, pick right back up where he left off before they threw him in jail. And in the midst of all of that, he writes this letter, First Timothy. 
Titus was likely written shortly thereafter. And then 2 Timothy was written when Paul was imprisoned a second time in Rome and was nearing his death. We know that because if you flip over in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 4, the verses 6 and 7, you see Paul writing things like this, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. So by the time we get to 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul knows. He knows his time's up. He knows it's about over. He's about to die. And he was right. It wasn't very long after the writing of 2 Timothy that Paul is martyred in Rome. He's martyred uh, by a lunatic uh, emperor named Nero, or those at his disposal. We we don't know exactly when that was, uh, so it's kind of hard to date. It could have been as late as 67 or 68 AD. We know that Nero uh, uh, suicided in 68, so it was before that. But somewhere in between 62 and 68 is when uh, these others were written. So that's as far as we can go as far as dating these sort of things and trying to figure out where they were. But it's at the end of Paul's life that he writes these letters, and this is what's important. So Paul's the writer. To whom is he writing, and and what's the context of the writing? Well, uh, we find that this is a letter written to a man Uh, named Timothy, and we find that Timothy, in verse 2, is remaining at a town called Ephesus. And this is really important for us to understand Ephesus and what's going on there in order for us to capture some of the intricacies of this letter that Paul writes and to answer some of the questions that we're going to find when we're going through. We're going to ask ourselves, why did Paul say that? And it's probably because something particular is going on at Ephesus that he's trying to address. But Ephesus was a major city. It was a very, very important city in Paul's day. Very important city. Now, along with Corinth, it was a, one of the most important cities in the entire region. Uh, the population was about 250,000 to 300,000 people. So when Paul, Paul was not an idiot. I mean, he was a smart guy. He was going to plant churches and win people to Christ. He goes to places where there's a lot of people. And he goes there because he wants to win the most people possible to Christ. And so Ephesus is one of those places that was high on his list, and he goes there. If you don't know where Ephesus is or if you want some sort of uh, way to locate it, Ephesus is really uh, in modern-day Turkey. If you want to know where Ephesus, the old Ephesus was, if you were to go to Turkey, it's right where that red dot is. You can go there today, and you can see uh, sort of an excavation site where they've, they've unearthed some pieces of ancient Ephesus. And I'll show you some pictures of that in a few minutes. But uh, they're, they're, Ephesus was important because of its large population, but there were four major highways that all crisscrossed through Ephesus. Now, why would that be important? Yeah, because in those days, that, that was how you trade. That's how you did trade. It was on the, the roads meant everything. You know, if you, had to, if you had goods and you needed to get them from wherever you got your goods to somewhere where you're going to sell them, you had to go via the roads. And so the people were where the roads crisscrossed. That's where, you know, things were. And it's still kind of that way today, right? If you're driving and you want to find a gas station, you go somewhere where the roads cross and there's probably at the corner, you know, a, an Exxon or, a, you know, a 7-Eleven or something. Uh, but it was, it was much, uh, much more clear in the days of Paul because there wasn't as many roads. 
And so these crossroads were really important. It was an important city for commerce. It was an important port city. You can see on the map there that Ephesus is right on the sea. So there's sea trade and there's seafaring going on here at Ephesus as well. So it's a very, very important uh, place, a huge marketplace, lots of goods, lots of people traveling sort of in and out of the city. Now, I've got uh, sort of a little flyby that that I think, if it works, we can show you sort of what it looks like if you were to go today to Ephesus and visit there and see sort of the ruins that they've uncovered from the uh, sort of the ancient city. Um, It is a place that's a big tourist attraction. Now, have any of you ever been to, to Ephesus? Raise your hand if you've been to Ephesus. I'm just curious to see. Yeah, there's a few of you that have been. I know Wendell's been there. We've talked about this before. Um, but, but there's some pretty remarkable stuff that they've, that they've unearthed there. I'll show you some pictures of those. Um, there, there is a, a library there in, in uh, 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 Ephesus that they've uncovered. That's got a, the whole entire facade. It's multiple stories. You can see it there that they've un- uncovered. But it was an important piece. They had like 15,000 scrolls in that library. I mean, it's not, not bad to have a... You know, a library with a lot of books in it nowadays. But you imagine 15,000 scrolls. You know, in the first century, that was a big library, and uh, you couldn't Google anything, so you had to do it the old-fashioned way, right? You just opened the scrolls and did your research. Um, don't worry about the video if that doesn't work. We'll just we'll just uh, show some of the pics so they can get a sense for what's going on. That library is there. <clears throat> there is a um, a big street that's called Harbor Street that they've unearthed. Yeah, there's the library. You can kind of see it. If you go there, that's kind of what you'll see there. The whole facade is sort of intact. There was this big street that was completely, in Paul's day, lined with columns. It was a really regal street. It would have been a really impressive sight if you had come into the city of Ephesus and you had been able to go down this sort of main street, Ephesus. Um, it was a remarkable thing. And you can see some of the uh, columns they've, they've unearthed and been able to uh, uh, sort of reconstruct the idea there. Um, this was a really advanced city, and if you want to understand how advanced the technology of Ephesus was, this next picture is going to really get you. Do you know what this is? This is what we call a latrine. Or if you go to uh, other places, if you're in the Navy, for all of our Navy friends, this would be the head. Um, for the rest of normal humanity, we call it a toilet. But most places didn't have this, but this is what they had in Ephesus. They had this pretty advanced sort of latrine system where uh, obviously you had company uh, while you were, you know. uh, It's not like today. Apparently privacy wasn't quite the same kind of an issue as it is today. Um, uh, So maybe, you know, you you hung around and chatted while while life was moving along there. But but this this was unusual. This was unusual. Uh, it was very, very advanced. They had a whole system there by which waste went down and water flowed through underneath and moved that waste right on out. So, I mean, that was really advanced, really advanced for their day. So this is part of the sort of a technology, if you will, of Ephesus. There was a huge theater in Ephesus, seated 25,000 people. Um, so they, they held ma- major events here in Ephesus. You could have a, a large crowd in this particular uh, kind of a place, and that's the, sort of the, the, what you would see today if you went there, something along those lines. They've unearthed a big piece of that, so a big theater there. Um, but, but more important than any of those things in Ephesus was a, one of the seven wonders of the world resided in Ephesus. It was a huge temple to uh, uh, Artemis, a.k.a. Diana. 
Uh, if you don't know anything about uh, ancient gods, and I hope you don't know much about ancient gods, don't study it. Study the real one. Um, but Artemis, a.k.a. Diana, was the, the, um, uh, the patron deity, if you will, or if you want to say it truthfully, the patron demon uh, for Ephesus. And there was this massive uh, temple that was built there to Artemis, to Diana. And it was where sort of the the whole pagan culture of Ephesus went to worship and to appease this this goddess. Um, If you don't know who Artemis was, she was the twin sister of Apollo, the daughter of Zeus. She was a goddess of fertility, magic, astrology. So you can imagine what's going on in this city. It's filled with worshiping a goddess of fertility. I'm just going to let your imagination run with that. I don't think I need to color it any more clearly than that. Um, Magic and astrology are a huge piece of of the worship of this particular uh, demon. And it's what the whole population largely had bought into. And so they would go to this this, uh, big temple. And at the temple, one of its major features was the thousands of temple prostitutes that facilitated the worship that took place there. And around this temple was just this, this entire industry of of exchanging goods that related to the worship. So they would make icons and statues and all of these things, and people would buy them and sell them. So there was the industry, those who made them and who sold them, and their living was you know, revolving around that kind of a thing. And, and so you understand, even just thinking in those terms, what a challenge it's going to be to come into this city and start preaching the gospel of Jesus, right? I mean, it's going to run completely contrary to all of that. It's going to tick off all these people who are making their living by selling stuff related to the temple. Because if everybody starts receiving Jesus and they stop going to the temple, then all of that industry shuts down. And people aren't really usually keen to uh, people shutting down their industry and taking money out of their pockets. And Paul is going to find that when he goes to Ephesus as well. So it's right in the mix of all of this in Ephesus that the Apostle Paul lands himself and sets about planning a church. And we read about this in Acts chapter 19. It just simply tells us in verse 1, It happened while while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul passed through the inland country and he came to Ephesus. came to Ephesus. So Paul's going about doing what Paul does and he lands in Ephesus. And he goes to Ephesus and he goes looking for anybody who will listen to him preach the gospel. And the first people we find that he runs into are some people who are followers of John the Baptist. They had heard John the Baptist preach, and they had been baptized by John the Baptist. And so uh, Paul runs into them and starts talking to them about the gospel. And, and we find in Acts chapter 19 there's this controversy about baptism. He says, wait a minute, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you were baptized? They were like, no, that, that didn't happen. And, and so Paul ends up baptizing them uh, truly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. A different baptism than that of John the Baptist. We'll set that aside for today because it isn't germane to what we're talking about. But he runs into these folks and he he realizes there are at least some people in the city that have a context for the gospel. He spends his first three months in the synagogue. Now think of the, the, the courage of that. To go into the Jewish synagogue and to spend three months preaching the gospel of Jesus and challenging the underpinnings of, of first century Judaism. Now, if anybody was qualified to do that, it was Paul, right? Because he was well-trained in Judaism. Probably better trained than anybody he ran into in those synagogues. So there's no question that he could hold his own with anybody that he met in those places. And initially, in those first three months, things seemed to be going good. 
Acts 19 tells us that for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And a lot of Jews came to listen to him. And during those three months, many Jews were converted and became believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and become sort of the first piece of the church that's going to be planted at Ephesus. But things go sour pretty quick. Some rabble-rousers come in and they run Paul out of the synagogue. So he goes down the street to a hall, we're told, a hall called the Hall of Tyrannus. We don't know who Tyrannus was, but it just means tyrant. So, you know, that's what you're known by. You can't be too great of a guy, right? But whoever he was, this tyrant had a hall, and he used it in the morning, and it was open in the afternoons. And so Paul would go to this hall, and it was pretty big, and he would just preach and teach to anybody who would come for a five-hour block in the middle of the day, every day. And so people would come from this city to this hall and listen to Paul preach. Gentiles, largely, with some mixture of Jews. And Paul does this for two years. Two full years Paul does this. And during that time, many people come to Christ. And the church, the Christian church at Ephesus, starts to sort of get established. But we're going to understand that this is going to be a melting pot, and it's going to be sort of a... a, 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 a a place that's primed for some conflict because we already know that the early people who come to Christ in this church are both Jewish and Gentile. We're going to smash those two cultural groups together in one local church and we're going to expect that because they now all came to Jesus that everything's going to be peace and harmony and everybody's going to get along and love one another and kumbaya together, right? Because we know in our world when you take people from different cultures that hate each other and put them in the same room, that's always what happens even under the flag of Jesus. No, it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. And it didn't happen that way in Ephesus either. So it's not going to surprise us that there are challenges and problems in this early church. But Paul worked hard. spent two years there. Two years getting this thing put together. And we're told in Acts 19.19, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. But one note that's interesting, if you turn to Acts chapter 20, this is a little later down the road, Paul comes back around, he leaves Ephesus, and he swings back by Ephesus again later on his way to Rome. And he stops, and he has a meeting with the elders of the church at Ephesus. And there's something very important that he says to them in that last meeting with them that's very, very important to understanding First Timothy. In, in Acts chapter 20, verse 29 and following, here's what Paul says to those elders of the church that he had established. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul knows what's going to happen to the church. It's very prophetic what he says here. Because when we get to 1 Timothy, guess what Timothy's going to be dealing with? He's going to be dealing with fierce wolves who have come in, who are speaking twisted things and drawing away disciples after themselves. And these are not fierce wolves who have come from the outside in. These are ones who are homegrown from within the church. But Paul knew this was going to happen. He was prophetic, and it's exactly what happens. So Paul takes off, and when all this begins to materialize, somebody has to go in 
and try and solve this and fix this and help the church deal with what's going on. That somebody was a man named Timothy. He was a man named Timothy. He's the recipient of this letter. In verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, Timothy was a man who held a very special place in Paul's heart. He was probably the closest to the Apostle Paul of any other human being that, that lived during his lifetime. If you just read some of the other letters that Paul writes... You see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He writes this. This is why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. In Philippians chapter 2, he says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2, he says to Timothy, my, my beloved child. This man was dear to Paul's heart. He was, he was his closest friend. He was, in, in a lot of ways, his protege, his trainee. He was uh, a constant companion throughout his ministry. He was someone that no matter what was going down anywhere, Paul could count on him. He could trust him. And he knew he could send Timothy into any situation. And Timothy would, would handle it just like Paul would handle it. He had no questions about his character. He had no questions about his integrity. He had no questions about his ability to minister for the gospel. This man was a giant of the faith, Timothy was. We first encounter him in Acts chapter 16 when Paul is going about his his early missionary journeys and he comes through a town called Lystra. Lystra is where Timothy was from. That was his hometown. And we're told in Acts 16:1 this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. This is where we meet Timothy. He's in his hometown of Lystra. He's likely in his late teens, maybe early 20s, when all this goes down in Acts chapter 16. He's a young man, a very young man. Uh, we find some interesting anecdotes about his life. He, Timothy was the result of a mixed marriage, religiously speaking, right? His mother was what? She was a, a, a Jew, but she was a believer. So she was a converted Jew who had come to Christ... And his father was what? He was a Greek or a Gentile. An unconverted Gentile. Now this is going to be important. Timothy was raised in a home where his mother was a believer and his father was a Gentile. She was a Jewish believer and his father was a Gentile. This is going to make him particularly suited for the work that's going to be needed at Ephesus. Why? Because what's the nature of the church at Ephesus? It's a church that's mixed in with a bunch of Jewish believers and a bunch of Gentile believers. And Timothy was perfectly acquainted with both of those cultures because he grew up in a home where both were represented. And so God had no doubt made this man for this mission. We're told that he was a genuine believer. Paul identifies him as a, as a disciple And he tells us that he has a good testimony, that that he's well known around the area as a man who has a good testimony. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, I'm reminded of your sincere faith. Your sincere faith. 
a faith that was dwelt first, or that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. So another anecdote about this man, Timothy, he was raised, spiritually at least, by his mom and his grandmother. That, those were the spiritual influences in his life. His mother and his grandmother, in the absence of a believing father, had invested in him from when he was a child. They had poured into him the scriptures and taught him what it was to know God and to love God and to serve God and to obey God and to be, to be in relationship with God. He had been taught those things by his mother and by his grandmother. These faithful women had, had made it a high priority in life to raise little Timothy in a way that he would know God. Thankful for faithful moms and uh, faithful grandmothers who still do that kind of work, right? I'm sure like most moms and grandmoms who are doing the hard work of raising children and teaching the gospel, they had all the same challenges and same problems with little Timothy, right? There were days when he didn't want to do this, that, or the other. And there are days when you're teaching and you're wondering, I don't think any of this is clicking at all. I don't think they're getting any of this. But at the end of the day, these two ladies were, were so so influential in this man's life. They set him up for the mission that God was going to call him to later in life. And equipped him for that. And those of you who are moms and grandmothers out there who are doing that work with your little ones right now, you never know if it's a little Timothy or a little Paul that you're raising. And on some days they seem like um, little Tasmanian devils, but don't, don't let those days fool you. You never know what God has in store for them. Keep, keep up the work. Keep up the work. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul writes, From childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. So from, from childhood, this was a part of his upbringing. And in 1 Timothy, at the beginning, he calls, Paul calls him. He says, this is to Timothy, my true child in the faith. True means genuine or authentic. This is to my, my real child in the faith. And we're going to find in Ephesus, there are a bunch of people who are part of the church who are not true believers. They're, they're fakes. They're frauds. They're teaching false doctrine. They've gone sideways and, and done all kinds of wacky stuff. And in contrast to, to these who once professed the faith and have now gone sideways, Paul says of Timothy, he's my true son. He's my true child. He's remained true. He's remained faithful. He's been steady in the mix of all these other people going crazy. We're going to find some of the people in Ephesus who are part of the church and rejected the deity of Christ. Some of them are openly teaching false doctrine. Even some of the leaders in the church are doing these things, which makes it particularly potent. We get a little glimpse of it in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, verse 1, where Paul says this. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and, and the teachings of demons through the insecurity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Now Paul is a you know, is a punch, you know, pull punches, right? He makes clear what's going on in the church. They're, they're, and he says, hey, what's going on right now? This was predicted. The Spirit said these things were going to happen, and lo and behold, here's what's happening. We've got people that have devoted themselves to deceitful spirits. They're teachings of demons. They're liars who have a seared conscience. They're imposing legalism onto people that they shouldn't be. But not Timothy. He wasn't in that mix. He was steady. He was consistent. He had a life of obedience and a good testimony 
with everybody around him. He was a true child, a genuine believer. Timothy was young, but Timothy was authentic. And he proves that with the rest of his life. Timothy joins Paul on his second missionary journey. After he meets him in Lystra, he travels with him. He spends the next 15 or so years of his life with Paul everywhere he goes. Traveling with Paul or going somewhere, being sent there by Paul. He's a constant companion, constant companion. By the time we get to 1 Timothy, he's been, there's been a good 15 years of time that they've worked together in the ministry. I mean, we see him all over the place. If you read through the New Testament, you'll see Timothy's name pop up. He and Silas were with Paul in Athens. He was with Paul in Corinth. He was uh, sent by Paul over to Macedonia. He rejoined Paul again and traveled with him all the way to Jerusalem. He was with Paul when he wrote Romans, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. Timothy was there for all of that. He was his constant companion, his his most loved friend, his his trusted co-laborer. And he often served as Paul's troubleshooter. Paul was a a laser-focused church planner. You ever met church planner types? I I, I love church planner types. It's just not, not my gift set. It's not my calling. But I love to meet people who are gifted in that and who are called to it because they have this ability to be laser-focused on church planting. They, 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 they find their great joy in going somewhere where there isn't a church and winning people to Christ and planting a church and getting it established and then going somewhere else and doing it again. Um, that was Paul. Paul planted it and he was moved on to the next place. But what happens when trouble rises in some of those places, as it inevitably does? Paul, the church planter, doesn't want to go back and fix all that stuff. He's on to the next city. There's still cities with no gospel presence. So he sends Timothy, his troubleshooter, to go back to some of these places after he's moved on. So he sends him to Corinth and he sends him to Thessalonica and he sends him to Philippi and now he sends him to Ephesus. And that's where we find him when 1 Timothy is written. He's in Ephesus. There were problems in the church. And Timothy is left there by Paul to deal with the problems. So I guess you could say Timothy served sort of as the temporary pastor of the church at Ephesus for a season. And so Paul writes 1 Timothy and he writes 2 Timothy to help Timothy in the course of that work. Timothy was steady. He was courageous. We're going to find he's the type of man who's not afraid to confront heresy. He's not afraid to fight the fight and guard the trust. Even though he's a young man, and we find that that's emphasized a couple of times here in the book, Paul tells him, don't let people look down on you because you're young. That isn't the important thing here. He's courageous. He's steady. He's willing to get in the fight for truth. Apparently, a lot of people in this particular church lacked the courage that Timothy had and were being swayed by these false teachers and didn't have the courage to stand up to them. But Timothy does, and he fights to the very end. Tradition tells us that some 30 years after this, Timothy is martyred in Ephesus. So in this place, he's, he spends the rest of his, his life in ministry, and he dies there, killed for opposing the worship of Diana. You remember when I told you those people who build the little idols and stuff don't like their money taken out of their pocket? They'll kill you if you do too much of it. That's exactly what they did to to Timothy. 
And so Paul's the writer. Timothy is the recipient. It all takes place in Ephesus. What's the purpose of the whole thing? Well, we'll see it as we go along. But there's two main purposes, and I'll just give them to you quickly. Number one, to to confront false teaching. Confront false teaching. That's the first purpose. We see it at the very beginning. Verses 3 and 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may, what? Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is your charge, Timothy. Go there and you get in their face and you tell them to stop teaching different doctrine. Don't devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that's by faith. So the first thing is to confront false teaching. And we're going to see, he's going to give us flavors of it all throughout the book. All throughout the book. He he doesn't describe exactly what the false teaching is. He just tells Timothy to correct it. And in that correction, we get some idea of what's going on. So the first thing is to confront false teaching. And the second thing is to correct ungodly behavior in the church. Now, I know, if you've been around church, it's hard for you to believe that there's ever ungodly behavior in the church. That doesn't happen, right? No. Not here. Not in in your world, in my world. But that's going on in Ephesus. There's ungodly behavior all over the place. And so we see in chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So Paul sends Timothy to confront heresy and to teach the church how to behave how to behave in the body of Christ and so those are the sort of the two pegs that we're going to hang all of our thoughts on as we move through this book confronting heresy and learning how to behave in church so I'll give you a little list here of some key themes we won't go through these right now because time's up but just look at these things these are some of the things we're going to talk about as we work through 1 Timothy we're going to talk about public worship We're going to talk about the qualifications of church leaders and how to select them. That's going to be really important to us because as elders, uh, in the next few months, we're going to likely be presenting to you, recommending to you some some new people for eldership in our church. And it's going to be really important for us to walk through what are the qualifications of church leaders and elders and deacons and all of these things. Uh, Paul's going to help us with that. Uh, We're going to learn about the pastor's personal life and public ministry. We're going to learn how to confront sin in the life of the church. We're going to learn about the role of women. And I'm going to make sure Britt preaches those messages. And um, then we're going to... It's going to be fun. We get to talk about women's clothing. We get to talk about, you know, how they wear their gold and whether they can speak or not and to what extent and where. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful for you, but not for me. For you, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to pick up with the care of widows, so just so you know. We're going to talk about how to handle money, the dangers that come with having money, the dangers that come with uh, over an over-pursuit of wealth and riches, and so forth. So, man, it's pretty interesting, right? That's some good stuff. Some really good stuff. So that's what we're going to be dealing with in 1 Timothy. Paul writes to this beloved man, Timothy, in the mix of this church plant situation that's gone sideways in this crazy city and in the mix of studying about what goes on there, we're going to learn an awful lot about how to live life in our context, in our day, in the year 2019, what it looks like to behave in the body of Christ and have order 
what it looks like to confront heresy when it pops up. And it's going to be a great journey. I hope you're excited about it. I'm excited about it. I think the Lord has great things uh, in store for us as we work through it. So let's just pray together now as we close this introduction. And let's ask God to pour out His Spirit upon us as we go on this journey. That He would confront us with the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to know Him and to walk with Him and to obey Him and to be firm and steady entrenched in the truth of the gospel. And that at the same time, He would teach us how to be a church that lives and, and moves in a way that pleases Him on every front. So let's pray for that together right now. Lord Jesus, You have called us to this season of church life through odd circumstances that have brought us to First Timothy. But regardless of the circumstances, we believe in your sovereignty and we believe that you brought us here for a reason and for a purpose this season. And so we're anxious and we're excited to see what you're going to teach us. And we're anxious and excited to see what you're going to do in us and in our church as we walk through this, as we, uh, as we read these words of an ancient letter. And we hear the heart of the great apostle, Paul. And we see the struggles of a young man, Pastor Timothy, trying to navigate the, the icky stuff in the mix of a of a local church. Through it all, Lord, you're going to teach us. You're going to inspire us. You're going to challenge us. That's for sure. But we pray that the end result would be that for those of us, Lord, who know you and walk with you, that our faith would be strengthened, that we would be further deepened in our walk with you and in our commitment to you, uh, that you would make us courageous and steady and obedient like Timothy, that we would have eyes and ears that are quick to identify when false doctrine and false teaching comes up, and that we would be the kind of a church that would be quick to address that. And at the same time, Lord, we believe that throughout this whole thing, there are going to be those among us who don't know you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. They've never repented of their sin. They've never entrusted their lives to you, bowing before you as Lord and Savior of their lives. And we pray that as we walk through this letter and as you draw people who don't know you to yourself to go on the journey with us, we pray that we would see some come to faith in you. You must do these things for us. And we pray for it. For your great glory. And for your name's sake, Lord Jesus, we pray.